0: Well, listen, uh, it it may come as a bit of a surprise to you, but believe it or not, God really does love Mondays. Um, Contrary to popular opinion, uh, God's favorite day of the week is not Sunday. It's Monday. Uh, And uh, yet that's not true for most people. Um, For most of us, uh, Monday is the beginning of The grind. Uh, It's it's the one day of the week, above all others, that we don't thank God for. We will thank God it's Friday, but not that it's Monday. And so I want to ask you tonight, what happened? If you would just for a moment take it by faith that God's favorite day is Monday. What happened that God loves Monday so much and we don't? Tonight I'd like to talk to you about why God loves Mondays, or uh, to put it another way, how to turn your full-time job into full-time ministry. And to get started, I'd like to tell you a true story that I think in some ways illustrates what happened so that there's this disconnect between how God looks at Monday and how we do. Stefan Breitweiser was arguably the world's most consistently successful art thief. Over a period of seven years, he stole two billion dollars worth of art from museums, auction rooms, and antique dealers all over France, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Austria, lifting those pieces of art from 72 different venues... Most of the old masters dating between the 16th and 18th century, he simply cut from the canvas, rolled them up, and stuffed them under his coat. He um, never sold any of the artwork, preferring rather to build a staggering collection that he stored at his mother's house. But here's uh, the problem. He got caught uh, by a keen-eyed security guard in Lucerne, Switzerland, who recognized him as having been in the museum just a few days before when an antique bugle had disappeared? The police were called. Breitweiser confessed everything to the police, giving them a full list of everything he had stolen and from where, and telling them that it was all stored at his mother's house. But here's the kicker as soon as his mother heard of her son's arrest, she immediately went into action and destroyed almost all of the priceless treasure. She threw 109 artifacts, including jewelry, pottery, and statuettes into the nearby Rhine-Rhone Canal, and destroyed 60 masterpieces by cutting them up into little pieces and throwing them in the trash. By the time the police were able to obtain a search warrant one week after her son's arrest, almost all of the $2 billion worth of art had been destroyed. When apprehended, she told the police that she was so furious with her son that she had destroyed them out of spite, fearing that because of his arrest, she would have her work permit revoked and would no longer be able to work in Switzerland. Think about it. Countless masterpieces forever destroyed out of fear, anger, and spite. I think that... This thing that we call work has suffered somewhat of a similar fate. Ripped from that place of honor at the center of God's masterpiece of creation, work has been shredded and trashed ever since. And it is our privilege to restore it to its rightful place so let me tell you another story that i think illustrates the centrality of the workplace in god's plan to transform the world it's recorded for us in the gospel of luke and we uh, will turn there in a few minutes but let me simply recount it for you before we actually open our bibles and look at it there was a man in an ancient city uh, of jericho by the name of zacchaeus we'll call him zach he was a tax collector he worked collecting the taxes that uh, rome imposed on Uh, it's conquered subjects and uh, he wasn't a big man he was perhaps the smallest man in town but what he lacked in stature he made up for in smarts for zach we are told had managed to climb to the very top rung of the ladder in a very crooked business of taking taxes from the conquered subjects of that country so he was not only a little man he was a rich little man Hearing that Jesus, this popular rabbi, was on his way through town, Zach decided that he wanted to get a look at this man that everyone was talking about. So he ran out ahead of the crowd, he climbed up a tree, and he waited till Jesus came. The text tells us that when Jesus showed up, he stopped, he looked up, and he said, Zacchaeus, come come down right now. I must stay at your house today. Well, Zacchaeus climbed down, I'm sure brimming with pleasure while all those around him were bristling with anger, probably muttering, what is this rabbi think he's doing? He's eating with the enemy. He's eating with the traitor. But that day Zacchaeus became a new man. Never had any religious leader ever given so much as the time of day to Zacchaeus, and yet here this rabbi had taken the time to show that he was not ashamed to hang out with the likes of Zacchaeus. And before Jesus left that day, Zach said to him, Lord, he said, I will give half of everything I own to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I'll pay him back four to one. And Jesus responded, Today, salvation has come to this man's house. He is forgiven. He's made new. And he is the very kind of person that I came looking for. But then, as if it wasn't enough, that Jesus had just publicly honored, publicly acknowledged this man that everybody else despised, Luke writes this, as they heard these things that had just gone on with Zacchaeus, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. And the parable is what is recorded for us in Luke chapter 19. And I'd invite you to listen or to follow along as I read that. Luke chapter 19, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. Luke 19, verse 12. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. The second came and saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you shall be set over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit, you reap what you didn't sow. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest." And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Here we have two stories back to back. One, the true story of a businessman named Zacchaeus, the other, a parable of three businessmen. In each of the the, the two stories, there is, as you can see on the screen there, a hero and a villain. In the first story, the hero in Jesus' eyes was one and the same. The villain in everybody else's eyes. This crooked little businessman who had made a lot of money and in the end used it to the advantage of the king, of the master. In the second story, the heroes, plural, were the two, again businessmen who, like Zacchaeus, had made a lot of money and, in the end, used it to the advantage of the king. Jesus, I believe, specifically told the parable of the three businessmen right on the heels of the true story of Zacchaeus because he wanted people to make the connection. In fact, Luke says, while they were hearing these things, he proceeded to tell this parable. Jesus wanted them to make a connection. And I believe this is the point that he wanted them to make that your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return. Your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return. Work is not a curse, it is a blessing. It is not to be squandered. It is to be stewarded. It is not to be avoided. It is to be invested. It is not a waste. It is worship. Your work is an act of worship, which is why I say God loves Mondays. All of you are called to full-time ministry. If you were here yesterday, I think you heard me say that. Whatever profession God has put on your resume, he has called you into full-time ministry through that profession. When someone asks you what ministry you're involved in, I hope you don't only think of your ministry of parking cars in the church parking lot on Sunday morning or of handing out bulletins. That's nice ministry, but God has called you to much more ministry than that that begins for many of us on monday morning when we go to work now some of us are called to do that ministry here in the bahamas others of us i believe are called to do that ministry in another less-reached part of the world. And as Rob has said and, and, and is praying that there will be a tithe of the members of this church to go out with the gospel to other parts of the world, I pray that there might be many of you who will go out taking your secular profession as a means of reaching the world. Crossworld is committed to helping people like you maximize the stewardship of your God given wiring for eternal benefit here and around the world. As I said yesterday, our vision is to send disciple makers from all professions who will bring God's love to life in the world's least reached marketplaces. So let me say it again your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return. It is central, not peripheral, your work is central to God's plan for world transformation. Tonight I'd like you to see from scripture why that is so, and to get a bit of a glimpse of what it looks like to actually leverage your work as worship to impact the world. So why is your occupation a sacred trust on which God expects a return? Well, there's three things I'd like to share with you. The first one is this, because God loves work. God loves work. He designed work, not as punishment for sin, but as a means of worshiping him through what we do all day long. There is no secular, sacred divide in God's mind. Everything is sacred in God's mind. The nobleman who represented God in this uh, story does not call his servants, give them Bibles and say preach until I return. He calls his servants, gives them money and says do business until I return. He didn't call them out of business. He actually called them into business as a means of serving him. Interestingly, it seems the same thing happened with Zacchaeus. Jesus apparently did not call him to leave His business for ministry. It seems like he encouraged him to leverage his business for ministry because that's exactly what Zacchaeus turned around and did. Of any career if God was going to call somebody to leave their job to go into ministry you'd think he'd do it to Zacchaeus the guy who's taking taxes for the Romans from the people of God but apparently Jesus didn't tell him to do that. Instead, he seemed to tell him something that made Zacchaeus think, hey, I'm going to leverage my job for ministry. You know, it's mystifying to me how far we have come from what I believe is a biblical understanding of our work. In God's original masterpiece of creation, there were two, uh, there were two particular relationships that were at the center Two primary relationships by which humanity would reflect God's magnificence, his greatness, his creativity, his goodness, and all the wonderful things about God. The first of those was man and his work. The second of those was man and his wife through those two relationships which were right at the center, God intended for man as an act of worship to rule over the earth. We see that first relationship, man and his work in Genesis chapter 2.15, where it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, I think you all know that was before the fall. So work was not a curse that God put on man after he disobeyed him. He put him in the garden to work it and keep it. That word work is actually the same word that is used in other parts of the Old Testament and uh, is, is often translated to serve or to worship. For example, it's the very same word that was used to describe the Levite's ministry in the tabernacle before God. Same word, to work it. It's also the word that God used when he said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me or worship me. Same word, work for me. God designed work as an act of service or worship to him. That's why I think Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, and he was speaking to the lowest of the low on the work totem pole. He was speaking to slaves. He said, whatever you do, Do your work heartily as to the Lord, not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, for it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. How? Through your work. Whatever you do. If you clean toilets, do it heartily. If you drive taxis, do it heartily. If you're the minister of finance in the government, do it heartily. Why? Because you're not serving men, you are serving God. We are called to fill the earth with worship through the man-work relationship and with worshipers through the man-wife relationship. That second relationship, the man and his wife, also the center of God's masterpiece, was described a few verses later in Genesis chapter 2, where he says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he puts the two of those relationships together When he says this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What is that? How do you do that? Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Through the man-woman relationship. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. How do you do that? Through the man-work relationship. In other words, you fill the earth with worshipers who will worship me through their work by discovering and developing and harnessing and subduing. All of the the hidden magnificence that I have built into this masterpiece of creation. Things like uh, the wonders of physics and botany and mathematics and, and architecture and design and the culinary arts and on and on and on. That was God's original design. To fill the earth with worshipers who would worship Him through their work. And when humanity chose to rebel against God, It was as if if the thief of all thieves came and cut right from the middle of his masterpiece those two beautiful relationships, rolled it up, stuffed it under his coat, and has been shredding it ever since. I mean, think about it. First of all, think about human sexuality. The enemy has turned human sexuality, that beautiful centerpiece of God's creation, into the number one undisputed object of illicit, perverse, criminal, exploitive, an often violent activity that has hundreds of millions if not billions of people totally in bondage to this twisted perversion of what was a beautiful centerpiece in God's masterpiece. And he's done the same thing to work. He took the man-work relationship and he has reduced it to meaningless drudgery for some, money hungry greed for others, a necessary evil for most, and something to escape from on Friday, but certainly not to thank God for on Monday. And he is calling us to change that. So, your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return, number one, because God loves work. Secondly, it's because God loves profit, he loves productivity. Profit is not evil. Greed is evil, exploiting your workers to make a profit is evil, but God loves profit. God loves productivity. In fact, he so loves profitable business that the three heroes in these two stories were which guys? The guys who made a lot of money. Now, obviously Zacchaeus made a lot of money as a crooked businessman, apparently, but when he got saved, his greed and his exploitation was transformed into generosity and integrity. Ryan is a cross-world worker who uh, intentionally chose to take a job, a secular job, rather than to go as a traditional missionary as I went uh, many years ago. He chose to take a secular job in Cambodia to reflect God's magnificence in the workplace. And so he's a tech manager. Uh, He's he's a a manager in a tech company, and he loves his work, and he loves people. And and, And for Ryan, His work and people, ministry, are not two separate things. They're one and the same. Well, how does that look? Well, for starters, it looks like this, that Ryan does his work with such excellence, leading his team, that the productivity of the company is shot way up. That's good for the company. And he doesn't do it by exploiting his workers. He does it by treating his workers well and helping them to be better workers. I can guarantee to you that God is glorified through the work that Ryan does and the people around him see the glory of God through how he does his work. He's a great manager and a godly Jesus follower who brings God's love to life as God intended through his work. Thirdly, your work is a sacred trust on which God expects a return because God loves reward. He loves to reward people who use their gifts well so he loves work he loves profit he loves reward to the guy who had the tenfold return what does he say he says well done good job but he doesn't stop there does he why because what happens in this life does not stop in this life he says well done good job you've been faithful with a little I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities you see what happens in this life doesn't stop in this life It goes on into the next. And we know that he wasn't talking about 10 cities in this life because in verse 15, the writer tells us that when the master came back to receive the kingdom is when he called these workers and offered them their reward. These weren't 10 broken cities like we find in some of the cities of America today. These are 10 glorious kingdom cities. What a return. He gets a tenfold return on the money that the master invested with him. The master makes him in charge of ten cities. Same thing with the guy who had a fivefold return. Five cities. Matthew actually adds a phrase. Not only does he say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a little. I'll put you in charge of much. He adds a phrase and he says, enter into the joy of your master. Interesting that God links what we do with what he's given us in this life to the the measure of joy that we will have in the presence of the master in eternity. Good job here. Great joy there. What you do with what you have here directly and exponentially impacts what you will experience there. So listen, folks, don't waste this opportunity. If God has put in your hands a certain skill set that, that you are using in your profession, don't show up on heaven's door and say, well, uh, and he says, well, what did you do with what I gave you? And you say, well, uh, I parked cars on Sunday morning. And he'll go, oh, that's good. Parked cars Sunday morning. Great. What did you do with the, 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 the talent I gave you as a designer? Oh, I, I hid it. I hated work. You don't want to be one of those people. What you do here with what God has given you has a direct and exponential impact on eternity. So in summer, your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return because God loves work, because God loves profit, and because God loves reward. So how do I make my full-time work into full-time ministry? It's okay for you to say, Dale, that I should love Monday. Monday. You know, you got, a, you got a ministry job, Dale. It's easy for you to love Monday. How about me? I got a marketplace job. How, how do I make my full-time job into a full-time ministry? Well, I, I'd like to just give you a few thoughts that maybe will help you on that journey. First of all, you need to love God supremely. Work as ministry is more about who you are than what you do or say. Work as ministry begins with who you are in relationship to your Heavenly Father. The greatest commandment ever uttered from the mouth of God was what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus said that was the number one. That is the most important thing you can ever do to prepare yourself for work as ministry. Anything of value that happens on Monday morning will be a result of the overflow of your walk with God, of the time that you spend pouring his word into your heart and meditating on it and seeking to obey him in, in whatever way he speaks to you. Zacchaeus was so excited about Jesus and what he had done for him that he couldn't wait till Monday morning. He immediately made the connection. He didn't say, oh, I hate my job, and I hate my boss, and he thinks he's God, and his boss actually did think he was God. That's what Caesar thought, but he didn't say, oh, I wish I could just have a ministry job. No. When Zacchaeus' life was touched by Jesus, he was so powerfully impacted that he couldn't wait to begin applying that on Monday morning. Monday morning for him and his customers was going to be a new day. It was going to be incredible. Imagine how much fun it would have been for him to show up at the door of his customers and say, "Hey, uh, I got something to tell you. You know the two thousand bucks you paid last year in taxes? <laughs> you only owed a thousand. I ripped you off. So guess what? I'm going to give you four thousand back. I stole a thousand. I'm going to give you four thousand back." Can you imagine how that would transform his job? Zacchaeus began to see his work as worship, and he was going to treat his customers with honesty and respect. He was going to be the most trustworthy tax collector they had ever laid eyes on. So first of all, you just start by loving God supremely. Secondly, do your work with excellence. You ought to be the best employees, the best managers, the best CEOs that your company has. And I don't mean you're always going to be the number one manager, but I mean the best you can be. Don't ever shortchange your employer by giving him second-rate work. Give him your very best. Joseph, you remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He rose from a prison to a palace. And if you read the story, it was two things godly character and excellence he was a godly man who was so excellent that everyone just kept putting him in charge of all the work wherever he was daniel went from Teenage captive to trusted cabinet minister who served in three successive world empires because of godly character and excellent work. Read it. In fact, if you look in uh, Daniel chapter 6 verse 3, he was described as being 10 times better, distinguishing himself above all the other his other uh, colleagues because an excellent spirit was in him. First of all, you just start out by by loving God supremely. And secondly, when you show up at work on Monday morning, you do the very best job you can possibly do. If your job is straightening chairs on the pool deck over here at, what's that called, Atlantis, man, you you get those chairs as straight as they can possibly be. You turn that uh, pool deck into an art form. If your job is is to be an engineer down here, you engineer as best as you can possibly do. Don't get by with just the, the bare minimum. Give them the best. You be the best designer you could possibly be for them. So first of all, you love God supremely. Secondly, you do excellent work. Thirdly, be people of integrity. Loving God and being excellent in your work doesn't mean you're perfect, you know that? And that's where integrity comes in. Integrity means that what you are in private... And what you are in public are one and the same you don't fake it so when you don't do an excellent job don't try and fake it like you did admit that you didn't tell them that you messed up tell them that you cheated them by not giving them your best that's what integrity is about so excellence doesn't mean perfection excellence simply means that we do our very best and when we don't we admit that we don't a friend of mine Eric works for a big company in Kansas City, and he says of his coworkers, they don't expect me to be perfect. They just hate it when I pretend like I am. Don't pretend like you're perfect. Be a a man or woman of integrity. We moved into our neighborhood in Kansas City back in um, 2010, and I'm a real cheapskate. I didn't want to buy internet. And so I decided that I'd steal it from my neighbor. I wasn't really stealing it. He had an unsecured internet connection. And I figure if he doesn't want to secure his internet, and I can get the connection through it, then I'll use his internet. I'll save myself a bunch of money. So for a couple of years, I just piggybacked on my neighbor's internet. And I don't remember what the Lord did to get But I became convinced that that really wasn't right. I mean, if it was really right, why didn't I just go over and tell my neighbor, Bob, hey, Bob, it's been great using your internet for the last two years. So that was kind of the measuring stick I came up with to determine whether it was really right or not. And so I I thought, well, what do I do? Well, I mean, the obvious thing is I go and buy my own internet. End of story, right? Not really, end of story. So I went and bought my own internet. And then I talked with my wife and I said, we got to invite Bob and Diane over for dinner. And I want to tell them what I've been doing the last two years. So we invited them over for dinner and we were sitting there and I said, uh, Hey, Bob, I got something to confess to you. He goes, yeah, what's that? I said, "Um, I've been uh, using your internet for the last two years, and um, God convicted me that I shouldn't be doing that, and I just wanted to ask you to forgive me. You know what he said? Sure. No problem. Now, I don't know what he thought of me after I admitted that uh, I had been stealing his internet, but I kind of think that he would rather know that I'm real than that I'm perfect. Before, he might have thought I was perfect. You know, I'm the perfect missionary. You know, My whole neighbor knows I work for a missionary organization. Now he knows I'm real. Now he knows that if he'll tell me the truth about something like that, he'll probably tell me the truth. So that's integrity. Integrity is just being real. Pretending you're something that you're not. Admitting when you mess up. Take time for people. Jesus summarized the essence of life in four words. All of life, love God, love people. He said they're the two biggies. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. You want to know what the key to making disciples is? You want to know what the key to uh, engaging the world with the gospel is? I really believe it's that. Love God, love people. Love God supremely, love people sacrificially. Natalie, a friend of ours, had been uh, coaching her friend Janet in some simple steps that she could take to begin to turn life into ministry. And one of the things she said to Janet was that you need to slow down enough to actually see people. So Janet decided to try, okay, I'm going to slow down to try to see people. So one day Janet was standing in, in line at a bank and she noticed the head of her a man of Asian descent who appeared to be having some difficulty filling out a form. So she went up and she offered to help him fill the form out. And after that was done and they had both finished transacting their business, they were walking out of the, the bank together and she was thinking to herself, well, that felt good, I can do this. So as they were going out of the bank door, she turned to the man to say goodbye and tell him that she was happy to have met him. And she had just begun to tell him her name when he said, I know who you are. She kind of looks at him thinking, how does he know who I am? I've never met the man before. He says, I know who you are. You're the lady who buys sushi from me every Tuesday. Here she had been transacting business face to face with this man for months and had never seen him. We need to slow down enough to see people. We talked yesterday about not just slowing down, but crossing to their side of the road. We need to get on their side of the road and be where people are. If you will cultivate your love for God, do your work with excellence, be committed to integrity and love people. That's about 90% of the job when it comes to work as ministry. The last 10% is where the fun really starts. Two more things. Step number five, watch and pray. Watch and pray for opportunities. Be on the lookout for God to open doors. You love God supremely. You do your work with excellence. You be a man or woman of integrity. And you treat people with respect and and show that you love people. Then just step back and watch and pray. Say, God, open some doors. Open some doors. Bob is a business guy. He works in downtown Kansas City. And he never realized until recently that his job actually was a place of ministry. And so he began to pray that God would help him to see how his work is an opportunity for ministry. Well, he's driving to work one day, and he was just pulling on the on-ramp to get on the freeway he, when he, on the freeway when he looks over and he sees these two guys under the bridge, beaten, uh beaten up on this, this third guy. So he wheels around in his shiny little silver beamer, he pulls off, pulls under the bridge, jumps out, and he says, Hey, what do you guys think you're doing? Leave that guy alone. Well, now, Bob is not a very big guy, and when he starts yelling at the two guys who were thumping on the other guy, uh, they leave him, and they start advancing on Bob. Well, now, Bob's not big, but he's also pretty smart, and he says, you might want to think about what you do next because I'm an uh, an off-duty police officer, and I've already called for backup. Well, he isn't really, and I guess he hasn't learned that part of discipleship that you don't just go (laughs) blatantly lying, but it worked, and these guys turned tail, and they started to run. So he goes over to the guy, Helps him into his car, asks him where his camp is. He's a street person. Asks him where his camp is so that he can drive him there. And when he gets him to the place uh, where the guy lives, he pulls out his wallet because he was going to give him some money. And the man says to him, I don't want your money. What I need is a job. Well, Bob could have just about dropped his chin right on his steering wheel. You know why? Because Bob's business is bringing jobs to Kansas City. That's what he does for a living. And he said, it was as if God said to me, just watch what I do when you have time for people and start to view your life and your work as a sacred trust. And then the last thing, when God opens the door, just tell them what you know. Just tell them what you know. You notice up to this point, work his ministry, we've talked about six, uh, five things, and you still haven't opened your mouth and started sharing the gospel with them. Here's where that might happen. You just open your mouth and tell them what you know. But Jesus said, "You shall be my what? Witnesses, not my lawyers." I think we tend to interpret that as lawyers. There's a big difference between a witness and a lawyer, isn't there? What's the difference? A, wit, a, a lawyer's job is to convince the jury. Is a witness's job to convince the jury? Uh huh. If a witness tries to start convincing the jury, the jury's going to go, whoa, 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 something fishy going on here. A witness's job is simply to tell what he knows. Just tell the facts. Tell what you've seen. Tell what you've experienced. Tell what you know. It's the lawyer's job to do the convincing. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. You let me be the lawyer. I'll be, you be my witnesses. Just tell them what you know. Tell them why you love me. Tell them what I've done in your life. Tell them how the gospel has changed you. So you do your work with excellence. Uh, you love God supremely. You do your work with excellence. You live a life of integrity. You take time for people. You pray and, 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 and ask God to open doors. And when he opens the door, you just step in and you just tell them what you know. You don't have to convince anybody. But you do need a vital relationship with the Heavenly Father. That really takes us back to the first step, doesn't it? If you're not cultivating that relationship with God when he opens a door... You're going to be going, because there's nothing fresh. There's nothing happening. But when you're cultivating a relationship with the Lord, and and Monday mornings is just an overflow of your relationship with the Lord, and you're doing work of excellence, and and, and you're a man of integrity, and, and you love people, God's going to open the doors. And when he does, you're going to have something to say. God loves Mondays because God loves work. And God loves work because he created it as a means for us to rule over this incredible world that he created as an act of worship you know i like to imagine god getting up on monday mornings and i know he doesn't get up because he's always up he never sleeps he never slumbers but just imagine with me i like to imagine god getting up on monday mornings and instead of saying thank god it's friday he says thank me it's monday and as as the millions and billions of people leave their homes and begin to flood the marketplaces of the world, I like to imagine God leans in a little closer in joyful anticipation of how his full-time ministers, that's you, you, his full-time ministers, will worship him through your work and how through the overflow of your love for him, your excellence and integrity, and your love for people, he is going to open doors for you to tell him what you know, to tell him how he's changed you. But I'm also here to tell you tonight that there are workplaces all over the world still today where millions of people will go to work without a single person like you to lead in an act of worship in bringing people to a saving knowledge of God because there are no followers of Jesus in those workplaces. There is no one there to declare his excellency. And that's why we have mission. That's why we are called on mission, not just to our city here, not just to the neighboring islands, but to the uttermost part of the earth. And God wants to use every one of us with how he has uniquely wired us to be part of that. If you were here yesterday, you heard me talk about my conversation with my oldest son, Joel, back in 2008, when he said, Dad, I want to impact the world. I just don't want to do it your way. And what he meant by that was, I want to take my God-given wiring and my love for international business, and that's how I want to impact the world. I now realize that Joel had discovered something extremely valuable. He discovered this priceless masterpiece that God had painted thousands of years ago. And though it had been soiled and stained by millennia of neglect and abuse, I think my son Joel could still see this faint image of himself and his work and himself and his wife at the centerpiece and that God was putting a desire in his heart to restore that masterpiece to its beauty. As for me, my frustration of eight years ago in not being able to offer a pathway to people like my son has been transformed into an urgency to find many many more like him and to see them released into the harvest with the unique wiring that god has given them to make disciples among the nations let me pray for you heavenly father we want to thank you that you have not given us a life that only has meaning on a sunday morning that only has meaning when we have our bible open but you've given us a life that is intended to be full of meaning as we take the God-given purpose and the truths that you have poured into us through our relationship with Jesus Christ and live those out all day long. Lord, you know how difficult that can be. You know that sometimes um, we're surrounded by people who don't want to hear what we have to say, but I thank you they don't have to hear what we Uh, they don't have to listen to what we say with our words, that we can say it with our lives, that we can love them, that we can show how we love you, that we can be people of excellence and integrity. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves as your servants, as working for you, working as unto the Lord, not unto men knowing and believing that of you, the Lord, we will receive the reward that one day you will say, good job, you used what I gave you well. Enter into my joy. So, Father, would you use your word tonight and um, in the days ahead to stir in us the thoughts and the behaviors that you want us to engage in. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.